Good morning. My name is Vincent Hoppy. Welcome to Grace and Peace. You may be seated. I am the pastor here, and if you have any questions, feel free to ask. Grace and Peace exists for the renewal of Colorado Springs, and we do that by connecting with God, caring for others, and cultivating in the city. And so if you have any questions, you can come hang out with me afterward. One of the best ways to be involved is actually with city groups. We have two city groups that have started. One is downtown that meets on Tuesdays and then uh, at 6.30 in the uh, kind of on the, on the um, Old North End area. If you have any questions, you can ask Micah, who is the handsomely dressed man up here who could wear colors a lot better than I can. And so you could talk to him if you're interested in that one. Or if you're interested, if you live up on the north part of the city, uh, I am working with uh, the, for, uh, the Keys, and we are going to be up in the old farm area. We meet at Tuesdays, 6.30 as well. And we are going to be multiplying these groups. And so if one of them doesn't fit, hopefully here in a few weeks, we'll be able to find you a place. And so, um, as a, you know, it's Palm Sunday, and we, we kind of hear this story about Jesus coming into the city, and he's the king. We sing these big kingly songs about how awesome he is. Uh, but that kind of reminded me of a friend, though. This whole story reminds me of a friend, and he told me about this opportunity. So, you know, he came up, and he's like, Vince, let me tell you about this opportunity I have, and you can help me too, and you could be part of this opportunity. Of course, if you've heard this before, it definitely sounds like a pyramid scheme because it is, all right? And so my friend was convinced as a freshman in college that he was going to be able to make enough money that he wasn't even going to need to finish college. You know, the person that was telling him about this, he had multiple cars, he owned his own place. Uh, I found out later it was a lie, and that was the thing. Maybe not everything was all that it meant, was kind of a shown to him. His motivation and drive, my friend's motivation and drive uh, to do this, was that he expected this program was going to make him rich with minimal effort, that it was going to preserve his identity his self-made, being a self-made person, and that it was also going to confirm to him that he had made it, this program. And so in a certain way, he was crowning it. This was his savior. This was his king. It was going to be everything. Uh, After six months, he was poor, upset, uh, disillusioned, and bitter. He thought the plan was going to be something that it wasn't. And in a lot of ways... This is what happens to a lot of people when they stop following Jesus. They feel the same way. Disillusioned and bitter. Um, And here's the deal, though. My friend thought that this program was going to do something for him that it couldn't possibly do. And oftentimes, we think that Jesus is going to live out all of my expectations, all of my wildest dreams is what we, what we hope him to do. But then when we don't get it, it's, you know, it kind of, we're let down. We're bitter. And that's what's about to happen to a whole crowd of people. But here's the deal. If you were to describe the God that you've rejected, the God that you don't believe in, chances are I don't believe in him either. I wouldn't believe in that God either. 
the God that let you down, the God that, that you thought was going to be something and then he didn't show up. You see, the deal is Jesus can't be fit into our self-focused expectations. And most of the Christian life is learning how uh, to unlearn the practices of the kingdom of my imagination or the kingdom of, of me, and we're learning the practices of the kingdom of God. We're learning to value the things that, we're, that we need to value or that we should value. And this story kind of brings us into this, and so there's a lot of expectations. So listen to these expectations or how there's expectations that are there. There's this crowd. They're there for Passover, and they're remembering the slavery and plight of the people. So they're living out this story. They're there for Passover. There's probably 2.7 million people is what they're estimating. 2.7 million people in Jerusalem, a town that normally at this time it was, a, it was a city that held maybe 120,000 at max. So there's a lot of pilgrims there. Okay? It's, uh, if you've been to a college football town, it's very similar to something like uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan, whenever there's a home game. Okay? Or South Bend, Indiana, when there's a home game. And there's people that just kind of rush in. So there's this large crowd there for Passover. And they're remembering the story of the Passover. When they were slaves in Egypt. And when God miraculously, by substituting for them, by substituting for them, made a way so that they could escape the clutches of slavery. But also then there's this note. Notice that they were waving palms, it says. They were waving palms. Palms typically uh, was associated, if it was a feast or a festival, was associated with something called the Feast of Tabernacles. We don't necessarily need to talk about that, right? But palms are, were, were uh, these date pr- palm fronds, which are taken off of trees, which are really uh, prevalent. You could find them all the time over there in, in, uh, in Jerusalem at the time. And so they took them down and they were waving them. What this was customary to do was, was because whenever a victor, a military victor, would come in and he has accomplished a great feat, he would come in and people would wave these palm fronds as a sign of his victory. And so upon hearing what Jesus had done, raising someone from the dead, they're like, aha, this is the guy. This is the one who's going to free us from Roman captivity. No longer will we be exiles in our own land. This is it. This is the guy. He's done it. He's shown it in a sign. He brought us from death. He brought Lazarus from death to life. He's the guy who by force is going to take these dirty Romans out. He's going to do it. And so they're thrown into just, just a frenzy. And they're singing this song, uh, Psalm 118, Hosanna, which means come, please save us. Please save is what it literally means. And then there's this, this uh, little quote right here. There's a little bit that John mentions about this um, the, a quote from Zechariah 9.9. It says, uh, fear not, that's actually from, from Isaiah, but fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming sitting on a donkey. And it's a little interlude. The people who knew this, you know, Jesus found it, it didn't, the, the crowd doesn't care that he's riding on a donkey. This is a little note that John is saying, he was riding on a donkey. The crowd's got it wrong. This is going to be really weird. And so he's setting them up. He's setting you up to say, 
their expectations for this great victory, they're going to be let down. And if you're hoping for this, this militaristic, they're going to kick the butts of the Romans, going to get them out of there, you're going to be let down. You're going to end up bitter. In fact, you're going to be so bitter, you're going to end up crucifying them by the end of the week. So he's setting them up. And this, they were calling him the king of Israel. And the king of Israel was to judge and execute the justice of the true king, Yahweh. He was supposed to live out what the true king wanted him to do. He's supposed to execute the law. And this would mean that he would judge the Romans especially. And all those people who gave in to Romans, those people would be judged too because they're terrible. And he was going to preserve our identity, national identity, they thought. He was going to preserve us. And then he was also going to confirm many people. He was going to confirm our national identity. It would mean that judgment was coming. But all these are misplaced hopes. And it demonstrates that the people were really wanting not Jesus. They weren't wanting the kingdom of God. They were wanting something else. And so it demonstrates this, that they were wanting the kingdom of their imagination or the kingdom of me. But Jesus comes to bring the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of my imagination, the kingdom of me, or is it going to be the kingdom of God? So let's talk about this kingdom of my imagination, all right? And a lot of what this kingdom of imagination is presumption. Obviously, God is going to save us and preserve our national identity. He needs us, is the thought. Look, look and they looked at Jesus as he's going to be the preservation of their identity, if Jesus has uh, left you embittered or he's failed you, maybe you were following a king of your imagination, thinking that he would always, always be on my side. He would be on my program. You know, the crowd with the, with the palms, they had nationalistic expectations, these visions of greatness and grandeur. You know, they were, uh, what they were looking for, you remember uh, that Napoleon Dynamite movie? You know, vote for Pedro all your wildest dreams will come true. That's, that's what they were, you know, that's what, the, that's what ends up happening. He's like, vote for Pedro, all your wildest dreams will come true. A few years earlier, about 130 years prior to Jesus or so, there was this guy named Simon the Maccabean. And he came in and he drove out the intruders and he resurrected the life of the people. They're like, ah, here we go. Another Simon the Maccabean. So when Simon had won the battle, what did they do? They brought out the palm fronds. He's the victor. And so when they see Jesus, they're like, ah, here it is. Here's our victory. He's going to make Israel all that it can be. He's going to make Israel great again. He's going to be awesome. You guys got that pun. Wonderful. Um, But here's the deal. We could try this on for a little bit, but as soon as he doesn't meet your expectations, as soon as he's imprisoned, we're embittered. And we cry out, crucify him. You know, what they want, what they end up getting, they end up asking for another revolutionary. They're like, "Mm, we'll take that other revolutionary. This Jesus guy is way too meek. He's kind of getting under our skin. He isn't doing what we want. He's not with the program. Doesn't look like he's going to get rid of these Romans. What's going on? So we'll take that other guy. So they exchange him. 
And Jesus, here he is, coming in, riding on a donkey. Um, one of the, so, so this is like, they, notice also here in verse 17, they, the crowd had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead. So these are people who were out uh, with La, uh, by, by Lazarus's home, and they had come in as pilgrims. They had heard that he had done this sign. They believed he was going to raise up the nation, kick out the Romans. Your, whatever you imagine about your kingdom, however you think of it, is going to influence the way you interact with the, those you disagree with, Right? So think about it this way. You know, like on social media, you see someone who says something you know, like that, that's kind of against you. You're like, well, how dare they say that? What in the world? And then suddenly you believe, well, obviously God is on my side. So do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get them back. And so you start typing away, or actually it's probably more like this. You start typing away saying, well, you know, well, actually God has got it right. This is how it goes. And you're always there correcting people. You're always correcting people because you always believe that God is always on your side. God is always with you. God has always got your back. But never once thinking that maybe God has some kind of sort of judgment for you. That maybe he has something to critique in your life, but you're very quick to critique everybody else. And do you know what this is? In some way, you're actually bringing yourself in judgment over God himself. Here's the deal. You're too ill-equipped to be judge. You're too ill-equipped to be the king. That job's already taken. Jesus has got it. Okay? And that's, that's the thing. But uh, this kingdom of our imagination is like we believe that God is on our political side. And Jesus in the kingdom, Jesus in the kingdom of God affirms and critiques every political party, every, every culture, and even your own culture. You know, Here's the deal. If they are always wrong, if the opposite side is always wrong, do you know what that means about you? You have to be always right in the kingdom of your own imagination. You have to be always right. Do you know how tiring and taxing it is to always be right? Good. Try that in your marriage for a little bit. Try that for a little bit. Rather, the kingdom of God looks a lot like saying, no, I am quite capable of doing wrong. Jesus comes in and critiques all their nationalistic ideals. When you have a God of your imagination, then God is leveraged to hate everyone you hate. You will always believe that you're better than others and that God hates and he judges you know, those people. God, God obviously hates and he judges those gays those conservatives, those Democrats, those Republicans, those, those real conservative family, focus on the family people. You know, he, he never once would ever, ever possibly judge me in my kingdom. And Jesus comes in, he's the king, and he's going to execute justice. And if you're a subject in that kingdom, the judgment also comes for you. Uh, Anne Lamott, and I've quoted it before, says, you can safely assume that you made a God in your own image if he hates all the same people you hate. And the crowd is whipped into a fervor because 
Jesus hates those Romans and he's going to save us. You never believe that God could ever judge you. But what if you don't have the corner on God? You know, if you don't have the corner on, on, on God, then you're not the objective arbiter of truth. What if God was the objective arbiter of truth, the only one? What that, what that means is you can be gracious to others. You could say you're wrong. You can walk in humility in your marriage, with your roommates, with the person who's talking crazy at the coffee shop next to you, you know, saying that so-and-so's going to hell. I'm like, well, how do you know that? And so that's, that's the thing. <laughs> you know, you can be gracious. You'd be kind. That's the kingdom of your imagination. And Jesus, you can't just kind of get him on your agenda. But what about this kingdom of me? The kingdom of me is this self-righteousness. It's saying, I've got it together. I can do it. I can achieve it. And they look to Jesus to confirm their identity. You see, this was the Pharisees' response. They were all about this kingdom of me. The Pharisees, they they end up going and they say, "Uh, look, you see that you're gaining nothing. Pharisees, we, we can't get Jesus on our side. The crowd's following him. Dang it. Look, the world's gone after him. So it's just, it's, they use hyperbole to say, oh, look at that. Look at what they're doing. Look at them. Gone after Jesus. But we're going to be right. Wait, God will confirm us. Because the Pharisees, what they believe, they believe that when God came to visit and rescue his people because he was going to execute his mission, that God was going to be gracious to them because they kept Torah. They kept the law. They followed the rules. You see, they believed in this reverse Christianity, I would say. They would believe that that I follow the rules in order to get to God, and God will be on my side. He's going to confirm all my rule following in the end. It's as if they believe, like, in our, in our brains, like, St. Peter, whenever they get up there, he's going to go, you know, a, a, you know uh, kind of a legalist nowadays, would come up there, but like, look at all I've done. It's got this list that they've kept. And St. Peter's like, obviously, we'll let you in. But that isn't the way it goes. Christianity's reverse. Christianity's reverse. It's not that you get to God. It's God come to you in the person of Jesus Christ to do what you couldn't do for yourself. That's the story of Christianity. But they're looking for someone to confirm their identity. So they built their identity on law-keeping, and they kept it to a T. These were the really religious, holy people. I mean, they knew what they were doing. They were awesome. And all of the king's judgments, you know, who cares, who cares about that King Jesus, this King of Israel, because we've got it right. They were about the kingdom of me, And if that king doesn't agree with us, he's got to go. And obviously, they got him to go at one point. And everyone is judged according to the standard. Imagine, though, imagine, though, if you are bent toward legalism and doing everything right. Um, Imagine, for instance, like uh, we we take your driving record, right? All of you drive. We're real self-righteous about driving. I'm the best driver in the world. And you know how you, and you had someone record every one of your moral judgments while you're driving, right? 
You see, Jesus doesn't need, he doesn't need to judge you even based on the, the law, the Torah. All Jesus needs to do is judge you based on your driving moral uh, record that you're keeping out there, right? So imagine if you're judged by this. Every time you made a moral judgment, ba- uh, moral judgment against someone else while you're driving, and then you take that same moral judgment and you place it on yourself, how's it going to go for you? <laughs> so someone just mouthed like, this is going to be crap. <laughs> it's not going to be good for you, right? So imagine in your whole life, every moral judgment that you ever made, you know, you want the kingdom of me? Go ahead. Be judged according to your own kingdom. Every moral judgment you ever made. And the thing is, is we have all these moral judgments and that's how we treat people. We project it onto them and we think, you have got to get with the program. You've got to get with my kingdom because I've got it going correctly. And when Jesus shows up, when God comes back, he's going to confirm me and he's going to show that I've got it together. That's the kingdom of me. And so you know what it looks like? You're uber competent at home. You've got everything together. You know, and then you push those, those competencies onto someone else and they have to have it together. Otherwise, they're messing with your kingdom. You know, how dare that child wake up at four in the morning? You know, or why does my roommate put the dishes on the top shelf in the dishwasher? That doesn't work that way. Who does that? And so you have all these moral judgments against that person. Why? Because you're projecting it. You're creating your own kingdom. You want the kingdom of me. And so everyone's judged according to your standard. And not only that, you end up becoming really entitled. You think everyone owes you something. And then so you're always embittered whenever things don't go your way. You know, it reminds me of this Ariana Grande song, this attitude of the kingdom of me. It goes like this. I see it. I like it. I want it. I got it. You know, that's the kingdom of me. She sees it. She likes it. She wants it. She got it. With her own money, I paid for it. Everyone owes me. I could just go and do it. That's the kingdom of me. And it's the kingdom of entitlement. And it's all self-righteousness. Believing that God has to confirm you because of what you've done. Because of how competent you are. Because of how moral you've been. But at Grace and Peace, one of the things that, that our hope, our value is, is not that, that we're people that have it all together. But that the competent and incompetent can come together and eat from the same bread. Because we need Jesus' judgment, not our own. We can't decide for ourselves. We can't judge ourselves. C.S. Lewis said, growth in Christianity is not thinking more of ourselves, nor is it thinking less of ourselves, but it's thinking of ourselves less. It's not this self-centered focus all the time. Do you know how it also looks like? Whenever your friends are off doing something else, you always automatically wonder, what are they thinking about you? Or on another way, you always think that everyone's conspiring against you. Thinking that they've got something up their sleeve. That's just the kingdom of me mentality. You're always thinking about yourself. And C.S. Lewis, his thing is, is, you know, when you have the judgment of God, 
when Jesus, the true king, dies for you and places everything and gives it to you freely, not because of what you've done, then you have the judgment that really matters. And do you know what? Then you start th- stop thinking about, like, what do other people think about me? Because you've got the judgment that truly matters. Self-righteousness says, I don't need God to give me anything because I've already done it. It is seen whenever God is, it's also seen whenever God is gracious to others, you, you be like, you own me, God. See, Christianity is the dying to the kingdom of me. It looks like giving up yourself for the other, and that's true kingdom living. Jesus says, take up your cross, deny yourself. That's the true kingdom. And when he shows up in Jerusalem, he's headed straight for the cross. To die for people. People who are rebels, who will reject him. And so, there's the kingdom of my imagination on one side, and the kingdom of me on the other side. And right down the middle, somewhere, is this kingdom of God. It is not an identity that is preserved, that you have made for yourself, It is not an identity that is confirmed, but it's an identity that is conferred, given to you. He gives it to you and it defines you. And that identity is in the kingdom of God. It's one in the kingdom of God, it looks like is that it's self-giving. It's self-giving. Disciples didn't understand and it wasn't until later that they got it and that John makes this little note. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Which makes you wonder why. Why is this emphasis on a donkey's colt? Okay, Because if you're a conquering king, right, what do you come into in your military parade? You roll down the streets with a giant gold tank, right? A gold tank like Master P from the 90s, if you remember that. But anyway, just just some hip-hop history. But... um. You, you would come into the city on war horses, right, with all your troops around. Jesus is coming with 12 scraggly guys, and he's sitting on a donkey. Like, not even a grown donkey. It was like a little donkey. It was like a mini donkey, one of those, like, show ponies, you know, like, just like, oh, how cute. And so there Jesus is, kind of sitting side saddle, just kind of rolling in there. I don't know what people were expecting. They're like, this is the guy, right? This is the guy that's going to save us. Yes, he's going to save you, but he's doing cosmic mission. Not just getting the Romans. He was going to break the back of the Roman power. And what was the Roman power? It was this control of death. They could do it by force, by sword. Force you to do anything. And Jesus is like, I'm going to break the power of death. I'm going to break the real stronghold. I'm going to break the power of sin. Watch. Watch what I'm going to do. The true slavery. I'm going to free you from the true slavery. The slavery of sin and death. And Jesus comes riding on a donkey, which is a sign of peace. And peace in the ancient near world and, and in Jerusalem and in, in Jew, Jewish culture was this living and right relationship with God, with others, with yourself, with this earth. And Jesus comes riding on an animal of peace to bring peace. So his life and his mission is one of self-giving. That's how he was going to execute this mission. 
And it was during the Passover, and so he was going to substitute himself so that the people would go free. It was in their story. The kingdom of God does not come by waging and winning the culture war on Twitter. It comes by small daily acts of merciful sacrifice. Little things. Sacrificing for your kids. Sacrificing for your roommates. For your neighbor. That's how the kingdom of God comes. And in grace and peace, we hope that we would be people that give ourselves for the sake of the others. For the sake of the others in our homes and our neighborhoods. And this is not just for Israel, but it's for all peoples. In Revelation 7, 7 through 9, it talks about a multitude of people holding up palms. They're all holding up palms because he won the true victory. He gains the world by not making everyone surrender to him by force, but surrendering to the powers that be. So the king crowns him and cheers him as the king of Israel. And on Friday, though, they will change, exchange him for a rebel. And so Jesus dies on the cross on Good Friday as a rebel against the Romans. That's what crucifixion was for, for those who rebelled against the Romans. And he gives himself freely. And if that's the, what, the, the mentality of how Jesus brings in his kingdom, by peace by self-sacrifice, what kind of people are we to be on Twitter, on social media, in our offices, on the road, self-sacrificial, giving of ourselves because we have a king who exemplified for us what it was to give himself. The story of the first martyr in Britain is the story of St. Alban. Albin, he was a lord. He owned lots of land. People loved him. And one day the Romans were coming to kill all the Christians. One of these Christians was a man by the name of Amphibalus. Amphibalus fled to the, to the home of Albin. And he was held up there. Albin asked him, what did he do? He's like, nothing, I'm a Christian. He's like, well, then he'll be fine. So Albin and him and, uh, and Amphibalus end up developing a relationship. Albin didn't know about Jesus. Didn't know about him. So Amphibalus tells him about the story of the great king who would exchange his life for the life of his people so that they may live. And then when the Romans came knocking on the door looking for Amphibalus, Amphibalus is freaking out and he's saying, they're going to kill me, they're going to kill me. And Albin says, no, they're not. Give me your robe, and I will give you my royal robe, and you could escape. And so Amphibalus gives him his robe, and Albin is taken away, and Amphibalus flees. And he is given life, and the Roman soldiers take, take Albin, they find out, like, you're not the one we're looking for. We're looking for Amphibalus, who are you? And he tells them. And then they ask, they ask, give him up. Are you going to die for this guy? And Albin, his response is, my God died for me. And at that, the one Roman soldier, he couldn't do it. He couldn't kill him. 
So the Roman soldier, hearing this testimony about Jesus Christ, gets down and dies right next to Alvin as they cut off his head. And that's the story of Christianity. Not a king who comes in and conquers by force and tells you to get your act together or I won't approve of you, but he is the God who comes and says, I approve of you, I love you, and I will make a way for you. I will exchange my life so that you can have life. The life of self-sacrifice. And that's the king that we have. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious God, help us to live like you, giving our lives for others. Help us to live under this true kingship, the true Lord, Jesus Christ. Because we know that the truly royal man, the Lord Jesus, gave his life for us in exchange for our own. And he is the king that we worship. Lord, that is the kingdom we belong to. And that is the kingdom we surrender to. That we give our lives away because it is worthy. Lord, this Palm Sunday, help us to remember you as the king who comes to bring peace and who will heal this world. You are gracious and you are kind. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.